Good morning. Once again, and we'd like to welcome you to Morrison Hill. Hopefully I'm not the first person who said that this morning as you've been here. I'm pretty sure I'm not, but uh, I want to make sure you've heard it at least once. We're so thankful that every single one of you is here this morning. We're thankful to have the chance to speak into your life, and we're so thankful for the opportunity for you to speak into ours as we all try to follow Jesus more together. Right now we're in the middle of a series called Wise choices behind the curtain. Uh, We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, and most of you have been here the whole time, so I won't walk you through all of that again. Just super fast, just this is what this means. We're trying our best to live from God's perspective. We're trying our best to make strategic choices based on not only God's obvious values that he gives us, but also just logic and, and, and facts and the way life works. We're trying to do the stuff that needs to be done so that we get the jobs he gives us done. To make wise choices means to try our best to, in the presence of God, see the things that he sees, see everything in, from his perspective, and then live that way. Here's the problem. When we try to do this, we look weird. We look weird to everybody else because it's not normal. Most of us don't see things the way God sees them. None of us do at the very beginning. And nobody does who's not even trying to see things from God's perspective. There's a reason that the process of salvation, whether it was the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament or our salvation now through Christ, begins with atonement and then cleansing and then fellowship and intercession and prayer. And eventually you get to the spot where you actually have a chance to be intimate with God, to actually be with him, to actually have him speaking into your life in tangible ways. There's a reason that's a process is because we all start far away. And it looks weird when anybody speaks from that perspective, even when it's God himself, even when it's Jesus himself, it looks weird. It sounds weird. So just heads up, as you try to do this more, as you make more and more choices based on your new behind-the-curtain perspective, I just want to give you a heads up, it's going to look weird. But the good news is it's going to be more and more effective. The choices you make are going to have God's power and God's wisdom behind it, and it's going to go well. One of the most dramatic stories that I've heard, it's one of my favorite movies, it's one of my favorite books, is the story of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss, uh, we actually spent um, last summer at camp, we spent two weeks just marinating in his story and all that. Many of you were there. But he was the first uh, conscientious objector to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor, which is really an interesting juxtaposition there because he's getting the highest military honor as a conscientious objector. And, and what happened was he enlisted in World War II as a medic, but he had taken a vow to God as a, as a boy that he would never pick up a gun again in anger. He would never take another life. So he believed very firmly that America needed to win. He believed that as many Americans and their allies needed to come back safely from that war as possible. He believed the Nazis needed to be defeated, but he would not compromise on this vow that he'd made to God. He would not compromise. He would not take a life. He wouldn't even touch a gun in training. 
He almost got kicked out of the military for that, as you might, might imagine. But he went through all the training, and, and what actually ended up happening, cut to the chase, uh, he ended up at this Battle of Hacksaw Ridge. And I want to show you this picture. This is actually um, Hacksaw Ridge, and um, the real-life thing. In the movie, there's this really cool dramatic scene where they see this cargo net that they've hung on the mountain for the first time, and he, with everybody else, is just going... Wow, we have to climb that. The actual true story was even more amazing. Doss and two other guys were the ones who climbed that hill, free climbed it, carrying the nets and the ropes, and actually installed it um, in, the, in the real life Doss. But anyhow, um, he, the, what happened was in the middle of that battle, um, they got, he got abandoned there, and everybody left. Everybody retreated. America was bombing and strafing the place. The Japanese had tunnels. They were coming back out trying to kill anybody that, they, that was still alive. But Doss knew there had to be some survivors, so he stayed up there alone. And one by one, for 24 hours, he would find them, and he would lower them down. And nobody else even thought he was up there. They couldn't even figure out who it was. They figured he must be dead. But this guy who wouldn't touch a gun that they had all tormented, called a, a coward, beaten, physically beaten, tried to kick out of the military, saved a minimum of 75 people that night, all alone. And most of them were the same people that had tormented him and fought him all those years before. But see, here, here's, here's part of what was why it worked. Part of it was he's just an amazing dude. Part of it is he's a little bit weird, let's be honest. It's, it's a strange story. And yet, he was living out some of these principles we've been walking through. And just as a, as a real quick review and also taking us into what's happening today, here, let, let's see how he did this. First of all, he was proactive. Using Dr. Stephen Covey's words, he focused on his circle of influence. He knew that he could not shoot a gun. That was a vow he had taken, and he was, he was done. There was no arguing with that. But he also knew that he was a skilled medic, and he knew that he was brave, and he could climb, and he knew exactly what he was capable of. And all through that night, he also remembered that he had God on his side, and he kept saying, God, help me get one more. Please help me get one more. That was his simple prayer, and God answered it over and over and over again. He acted proactively within his circle of influence and it worked. The same thing he did was he began with the end in mind. Like I told you earlier, all he wanted was the Nazis had to lose as many of the allies needed to come home safely as possible. And he could not, no matter what, break his vows to his wife or his God. All his other choices were simple to him just because he was so clear on what had to happen. He was willing to die, but he was not willing to compromise. And that's why he was able to do such amazing things. And that's why, he, in his mind, he put first things first. In fact, in the middle of that, his vision was so clear, he tried to save several of the Japanese soldiers along the way. One of the funny lines in the movie is somebody's saying that. They're like, there were even Japanese people coming down on that rope. And, we, and, and they go, well, where are they? And they go, oh, they didn't make it. Because <laughs> he was the only one who had this vision, this clear vision going on. But this is the way it works. It looks weird and yet amazing thing happen when we completely surrender to God and his will and then we act strategically on it. Last week, uh, we got to go to the Youth Pastor Summit in Orlando and that was really, 
really cool. One of the um, speakers, there was a guy named Ryan Leak, and he kept saying over and over this phrase that he took from 1 Corinthians 3.6. 1 Corinthians 3.6 is where Paul is trying to talk to the Corinthians, and there'd been some division there, and what they were, some were saying, well, you know what? My favorite teacher is Paul. I side with him. Some of them are saying, my favorite is Apollos. And Paul writes to them in that verse, and he says, you know what? I planted the seeds. Apollos watered them, but God makes it grow. And this guy named Ryan Leak, he was an awesome speaker. I'd never heard him before. I was really impressed. But he, he kept saying, you've got to remember this, that God makes things grow, not us. God makes things grow, not us. And, and that, though, in a weird way, was his motivation for why we have, not only that we have to kill our egos, that we have to make sure that we don't get in the way in any possible way, but also that we do everything that we possibly can so that God can make it grow. That those of us who plant, plant. Those of us who water, water, so that God can make it grow. And all of this rolls around. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorites always, so here's another C.S. Lewis quote for you. He just has a knack for saying it perfectly, in my opinion. He says, it is not your business to succeed, but to do right. When you have done right, the rest lies with God. Actually, would you read that one out loud with me? I, I just, that one's powerful. It is not your business to succeed, but to do right. When you have done right, the rest lies with God. This is where it looks weird to people. This is where it looks scary. This is where it feels terrifying. And this is where <laughs> the rubber meets the road. This is it. When we act in faith, when we make these strategic choices in the direction we know God wants us to go, then we just have to leave it up to him. That's, and that gives him a spot to make it through. Paul writes about this um, when he's describing Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 which harmonizes perfectly with the scripture that John just um, read a few minutes ago from the Old Testament. And this is one of my favorite passages ever. And it says, your attitude must be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And taking on human form, took on also the form of a servant, became obedient, even unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even Jesus himself understood this idea that it's God that makes it grow, but we do what we have to do. So one more really great strategy that this also hints at, and also what we're going to look at, one more beatitude this morning. I'm sure you saw that coming if you've been here the last couple of weeks. But another strategy from Dr. Covey is think win-win. To think win-win, we take ourselves out of the equation. It's not about us. We, we're not trying to w get people to think we're the rock star. We're not trying to get people to think we did it because we know better. We're just trying to do our very best. We're trying to help the whole team succeed. As Christians, that means we're trying to help our families, our church, our small group, our big group, the whole thing. We're trying to make the global kingdom of God grow. That is our passion. That is what we're trying to do. And then we act accordingly no matter how we feel. 
We, we, whatever gifts we have, whatever sphere of influence God has given each one of us, we act boldly, strategically within that. But it's no longer about us at all. It's completely about Him. To act win-win is to figure out how we can get everybody to win. Again, here's some of the weird things Jesus has said that we've looked at in the last couple weeks. In Matthew 5, 3 through 8, he says that God blesses the poor. God blesses those who are poor in spirit or humble. Those who are pure in heart or 100% committed to him. Those who hunger and thirst. Those who crave righteousness. Nothing else satisfies except God's will. And he says that God blesses those who mourn, those who are willing to take their mask off, those who are willing to absolutely grieve when they need to, but also move on in the comfort and the healing that God gives on the other side. And especially those who mourn for the things that God mourns, the things that grieve his heart, the things that break his heart. Because when we feel the way God feels about things, we're motivated to act in the directions that God wants us to act. And those who mourn for the lost go. Matthew 5, 7 is where we're at today. Words of Jesus. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This was one of Jesus's core themes. This wasn't just one of the things he just happened to say in the Beatitudes. This idea of mercy and a strategic view of mercy is one of the things that he spoke of often. In fact, Matthew 18, the entire chapter, in one way or another, is, is unpacking Jesus's version of this idea. And I encourage you on your own later to read through Matthew 18, the entire thing, and just meditate on this. Almost everything in this chapter should sound very familiar to most of you. A lot of people don't realize it all kind of got mashed in together. It was all kind of one big teaching in the original. But we're going to look at that really quickly today. But again, I encourage you, I, I plead with you to go back and really marinate in it later alone with God when you have a little bit more time. And all the life groups, you guys will have quite a bit of time to unpack this together. First, in Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14, you see this concept that mercy means holy unfairness. And if you're keeping track, these are some of the, the purple words of the few ones that you would write down in the bulletin insert. If you're not doing that, at least that's, that's an easy way to use it as a Bible study later. Mercy means holy unfairness. This is the story, and I'm sure you guys have heard it. This is where people were bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, you don't really have time for that. You, you, this, is, this, is, this is not as important as some of the other things you're trying to do. And Jesus says, oh, no, no. Let the children come to me. This is important. Didn't seem weird. It seemed weird to everybody. Didn't seem fair. Didn't seem... Like it made much sense, and yet Jesus takes time to bless each one of these children. He saw that as a valuable thing to spend his time on, more than whatever else he was doing with the adults at that moment. And not only that, this is where he tells the story of the lost sheep. And you talk about holy unfairness, we sing about it all the time. We love saying, God left the 99 to come find me. What about the 99, dude? That's not fair. That's really cool and all that. But on our side, if we're the ones he's coming to look for, but we're the one that got ourselves lost. It's a beautiful thing. But mercy is a kind of unholy 
I'm sorry, completely holy unfairness. <laughs> wow, I totally messed that one up. Mercy is a holy unfairness. There we go. And we can't miss that. Second thing, mercy is thinking win-win. Um, in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, um, Jesus is explaining how to solve conflicts between believers. It's one of the most practical teachings in the scripture. And if all of us followed this, there wouldn't be conflicts like there are in churches. We're notorious for knowing this. So many times we go like what every other culture in the world does. And when we have a conflict with someone, we tell everybody else about it except the person we have the problem with. And then we wonder why there's division. We wonder why there's problems. We wonder why there's no healing. Jesus said, go straight to the person. Then he, he understood, he was realistic, he, he lived in the same world we did, and he understands that won't always work, so he had a couple other things. The end of it, if you've never heard this before, the end one is go back to, they're just not your ally. You're friendly to them, you're loving to them just like they're a, a non-believer. You treat them like you would a non-believer, which is in a good way, but they're just not your spiritual ally anymore. You weren't able to work that out. But nowhere in Jesus' scenario is there an option for us to build up teams against this other person or their team or, or have teams at all. We're all one big team. It's a win-win kind of a mentality, and we're going to handle even the worst conflicts that we have, the problems we have with each other, in a way that says, how do we all end up together on the other side of this? How do we all end up healed on the other side of this? How do we end up stronger on the other side of this? How do we still end up a team on the other side of this? You can't miss that. Mercy is thinking win-win. Mercy is also following Christ's example. Just like we heard in two big passages a little bit ago, he also spends the next several verses telling the story of the unmerciful servant. I'm sure you've heard this, so again, I'll keep it short, but please go back and meditate on it later. What happens is there's a king, and the king is owed an incredible amount of money by one of his servants. We're going to say, for our purposes this morning, a million dollars. There's no possible way that guy can do that. But the king wisely thinks through this, and he says, you know what? This guy would be more valuable to me as a free man who actually loves me and appreciates me and thinks I'm a good dude than he would going to prison for the rest of his life on my dime or getting killed for what he's done and everybody blaming me for it. So he calls the guy in and he goes, you know what, hey, you don't owe me anything. I'm gonna wipe your debt away. And the guy is overjoyed and he goes walking away and on his way home, he meets somebody who owes him just a small amount of money. We're just gonna, for our purposes today, say $100. Guy owes him $100. He gets that guy arrested and sent to prison for not paying back that debt. So the king says, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. That's not okay. Calls the first guy back in, sends him to prison for the rest of his life. And Jesus says, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. And once again, this idea of forgiveness ties into mercy, and this is one of his central themes. In Matthew 6, 12, when Jesus is teaching us to pray, and I'm using the um, Passion Translation for this one because I just thought it was a really unique, awesome way. Thanks again to the Reed family who showed me that and gave me a copy of it. I love that. But would you read this one out loud with me? Forgive us the wrongs we have done as we ourselves release forgiveness 
to those who have wronged us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. A book that's just really been speaking to me recently is Woke Church by Dr. Eric Mason. I love his take on the story of Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner, and he had a slave named Onesimus who ran away. But in this story where you would, we would assume because of the terrible, unspeakably wicked thing that was slavery in America, we would just assume that the slave's got to be the good guy, the slave owner's the bad guy. But Dr. Mason points out that in this story, it's kind of the other way around. Back then, slavery was more like what we would call joining the military or getting, in a, getting a job. And, and somebody that goes AWOL or somebody who just doesn't show up at work one day and is just gone is not really the good guy in this situation. But Paul leads Onesimus to Christ, and he sends him back with this letter that's now in our New Testament called the book of Philemon. He sends this letter back to him, and he says, I know that you have every legal right to beat him and to make an example of him for all your other slaves. That is the legal thing for you to do. But here's what I'm asking you to do instead. I'm asking you to not beat him. I'm asking you to treat him like family, and I'm asking you to send him back to me as a fellow missionary on my team. There's nothing fair in that. On either side, on any of that side. There's no fairness in there, but holy unfairness. And you, can you see the win-win? Can you see following Christ's example in that story? And this is how it works. It says mercy is atonement, not compromise. Would you say that with me? Mercy is atonement, not compromise. If I loaned you my car and you wrecked it, I'd have two choices. One is I'm going to make you pay for it. And I could probably make some really good arguments about why that's a good life lesson for you. Why that's only fair. Why that's the right thing. And maybe it is. I don't know. It depends on the situation in my opinion. But my other choice would be, no, it's okay. It wasn't, your, it, you didn't mean to. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. What's not on the table for me is to say, oh, that's okay. That won't cost anything. That won't take any time or money or rearrangement with insurance or anything else on anyone's part. That's just not a big deal. That's not a choice that I have or you have if you wreck my car. I can make you pay for it. I can pay for it. But not paying for it is not an option. Somebody pays. Mercy is atonement, not compromise. There is nothing about sin where God says, you know what, it just, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Somebody has to pay. And when we offer mercy to someone, when we offer forgiveness to someone, it's always important to remember we're not telling them. It's not a big deal. Everybody messes up. You know, I understand. We're saying, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay that for you. Or Jesus already paid that for you. One way or another, we're going to walk through this together Instead of you having to walk through it on your own with no help and no hope on the other side. And that's a completely different thing. But it's how God treats us. Peter writes this. The Lord is not really being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he does not want anyone to be destroyed. 
but he wants everyone to repent. And this is, if anything, this is the heart of what I hope you take away today, is mercy is a strategic choice that God makes in our direction and a strategic choice that he calls us to make. It's not given so that we can just go on our merry way as if nothing happened. It's given so that we have another chance to do life differently on the other side. Let me say that again. Mercy is something that God gives us so that we have one more chance to change. Mercy is something that God gives us so that we have one more, one more chance to get it right. One more day to live and be transformed to actually start to see things and live out life the way he wants us to. It's not given to us just because sin no longer matters or because he just really thinks we're cute. He, mercy is a strategic thing and the, so is the mercy that he challenges us to give to others. Paul writes this, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? See, God is challenging us with this same win-win mentality that he has. A win to God is not just that he gets to punish everybody. Fairness is not as important to him as restoration and transformation and the chance that we all stay a family. And on the other end of anything, good or bad, that we all find unity and strength and his dreams for us in this world and on the other side of that, heaven. And he's willing to do just about anything to make that happen, including offering mercy including being patient, including waiting a little bit longer before he sends Jesus back and all the choices, all the chances are done. And this is exactly the kind of mercy that he asks us to offer to each other, not to pretend that the things that we do to each other aren't a big deal, but to offer mercy saying, you know what? On the other side of this, we need to be a team. On the other side of this, we need to stay a family. On the other side of this, we've got to find healing. On the other side of this, we've got to accomplish God's purposes together. If that means me paying some of the consequences for your mistake, so be it. But we're a team. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. There's a lot of prayers in the Bible and also a lot of prayers that more formal churches than we are use almost every Sunday. It's one of the things I think we miss by not being as formal. I'm not saying we should be. I'm just saying it's a fact. We miss some of that. But there's a lot of really beautiful prayers people have written and pray often that begin like this. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Would you say that with me? Would you say that to God for a moment? Just, just reach, reach out to him. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let's say that one more time. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. As we wrap up this morning, this is what I'd love for you to pray. If you've got your bulletin insert, these two things are written down there. If, if you don't, you don't need it. You can just pray this to God. But let me tell you two things that I know always is on God's agenda when he shows you mercy. It's the two things that he always is hoping that is going to happen when we show each other mercy. One is we're going to get closer to him, and the other is we're going to be empowered to go out and share that with others more than ever. 
Those two things are going to happen. So here's what I'd like you to ask God silently as the band comes and starts to play. Here's what I would like to happen. I would like you to pray this prayer. Lord, in your mercy, hear my prayer. How do you want to draw me closer right now? What are you ask, how are you asking me to get closer to you, more intimate with you? And also, Lord, in your mercy, hear my prayer. What is it that you would like me to do on the other side of your mercy? What is it that you're sending me out to do? What is it you're empowering and challenging me to do? I implore you to just silently right now, seriously pray that prayer to God. Play those two prayers. In a moment, we'll stand and sing together. And I challenge you to make whatever decision God challenges you to make this morning.